Podcast One Production. Welcome to Brand New World, a podcast series designed for marketers. Hi, I'm Russell Howcroft, Chief Creative Officer at PwC Australia, and I, along with Southern Cross Stereo, have a passion for building brands and businesses. The COVID-19 global pandemic has created insane disruption across the world, none more so than in the marketing industry. We're being forced to find new ways to build brands and communicate to our customers as their behaviour changes to adapt to what we're calling the new normal. This podcast series will help you find opportunity amongst the chaos. Throughout the series, we'll talk to experts in the industry about how they're adapting to a brand new world. As the host, my role will be to tease out the insights, creativity and lessons that will help us all get through this together and most importantly, keep your brand and business in good stead for the future. The good news is we're not all screwed. There is opportunity. In this episode, we will cover marketing leadership and what makes a great marketing leader. Our guest today is Ken Roberts, Group Chief Executive and Founder of Forethought. Forethought are leaders in marketing science and advertising effectiveness. We can't wait to dive into this topic and hear more from Ken. G'day, Ken. G'day, Russell. Lovely to be with you. Very nice to see you. So now, Ken, let's just go back in time. Mm. Jeez, it's a while ago that we first eyeballed each other. Indeed. So when was that? With the 80s. Mid-80s, when there was this course called marketing. Yeah. You got a business degree in marketing. (laughs) We call it Monash University now, of course, but at the time it wasn't. No. It was the Chisholm Institute of Technology. Mm -hmm. Would you say it was when marketing was starting to become a science or is that over the top? No, I think that in Australia it was absolutely at the forefront of the development of marketing theory and science. I think it was probably a good 10 years behind the US. Mm -hmm. By the way, in those days, Russell, you know, the enter score to get into that course was as high as, as commerce or any of the other you know, as, even as high as law, some universities. So it was an emerging category at the time and, uh, and it grew very strongly. And, uh, yeah, the, the folks that were the leaders in that course in th- those times are, are today really legends in marketing. When, you were do- when we were doing the course, mm. did you know that you'd hit a sweet spot when you were there? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. So tell us about that. I started commerce at beautiful Newcastle University and I did a, a marketing 101 unit at Newcastle, loved it thought I want to do more of this, looked around Australia and found that Melbourne was the centre of marketing and came down here and, and enrolled and, and there you were. Yeah. Well, that is interesting because I remember you well because you took it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me a while to take it seriously. In the end, I did, mm. but it took me a bit of a while. So tell us about those characters that were at the school at the time because, as you say, um, they are genuine stars of the marketing world, the academics I'm talking about. So tell us a bit about them. In those days, Russell, the term academic was a bit loose. They tended to be folks that were practitioners and they'd had some street cred. We had folks uh, like Gary Harris who had been involved in the State Bank of Victoria campaign. And, yeah. and so, or Don Bradmore who taught sales strategy and, yeah. and he'd led large sales forces. So yes. they weren't academics in the sense of they'd been published in T1, you know, refereed journals, but they were great teachers in that they had applied the craft and they'd understood what worked and what didn't work. Yeah. Then they gave us the textbooks to work through the literature. If my memory serves, the textbooks we were using were the premier textbooks of the world of marketing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And indeed, some of the academics were co-publishing with with the likes of Kotler and, and so on. So 
Ken, as you know, I do love the academic side of mm. marketing, the proof points of marketing. As uh, we like to say, dear client, there is evidence from the moon and back this stuff works. Are you over having to prove to people that marketing works? Oh, glory be. There's a thing called the intuitive marketer that still exists, Russell. We uh, might talk about the evolution of marketing, but the 1P marketing has tended to create a lot of leadership coming out of advertising. A lot of CMOs are now ex-advertising and that's great because they have skills, they have literacy in areas of of media and, and so on, but they tend to be a little bit more intuitive and a little less focused on the, the literature. Yeah. But the literature, you know, I mean, is also, we've seen the literature misleading as well because just because an academic has published something about a particular environment, organisation in a particular environment, doesn't mean that it's it's necessarily relevant for you and your situation. So marketing, I think, it's, it's not like physics. You really do have to have someone at the wheel who has some intuition, some judgement to apply along with the science. And it's the science that's taken us much further. I think that we've seen analytics coming in far, far, far more into decision-making. But from our perspective, we would say that analytics based on organisational data alone, secondary data, is pretty shallow. And and yet that's where most big data analytics is situated. Mm -hmm. We think that there's still a really major role for primary data. And of course, you know, that survey data and of course that's that's, that's what, what you do. Does, yeah. Okay, so tell me, so you call about the one P marketer. Geez, I like that. The mm. one P marketer. So I presume what you're saying is the one P marketer is the promotions based marketer. Dead right. Okay. So how many marketers are you seeing that are four P, four P marketers? Genuine engagement with place, product, price, not just promo? None. 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 Right. None. I think that Chief Customer Officer has taken a whole lot of ground, particularly around the experience. I suspect marketing will never get that ground back, mm. particularly, as I said, about who's now populating those, those senior executive roles. But you, you do come across multidisciplined leaders in marketing that do have a grasp on product and promotion, but pricing less so. And I think I strongly believe that pricing is the most neglected area of all. Yeah, we're just doing a fist pump across the across the studio. Because yeah, yeah, was, this is where I was getting to, Ken. Mm. This is where I wanted to get to. In the end, isn't marketing about price? So look, I mean, recession. We're in the, the on the city on the cusp of one. You'd be crazy to believe that there won't be one. Many marketers, price is the unsavoury topic. Oh, I don't know. It's not. It's not raised at, at the dinner table. But brand owners, they expect consumers to know their price. The, the consumer doesn't even know their dad's birthday. How, do, how will they know the the, uh, the price? It's not about price. We did a survey, piece of work, Russell, with 9,000 respondents for Yum! Brands for, for KFC. Yeah. And we gave these 9,000 respondents a virtual menu board without prices. And we had three segments. Folks who occasionally went to KFC, folks that were in the category that didn't go to KFC, and heavy users of KFC. And we asked them to put prices. Even for staples like fries, heavy users were no more accurate at telling us the price than people that didn't go to KFC. Right. So it, it takes us to an area which is really critical. And if I could do only one thing during this current period, it would be to look at my price brand, 
my reputation for being price competitive as opposed to the dollars and cents. Okay, so reputation for being price competitive or is Zoe Foster-Blake, very Mm. interesting, an instinctive marketer, Mm. she was talking to me about perceived value. And I'm saying, hallelujah, I learned that mid-80s, Monash, Chisholm Institute of Technology. Uh, Have we lost the idea that this is a perceived value game? Oh, I I think 100%. Right. Russell, in number one Market Street is Caltex's headquarters, or Ampol, so it will soon be known. They have a whole floor of pricing analysts. And yet, you know, the pallet of wood and the pallet of water sitting out the front of the service station is as powerful as the board. Yeah. So understanding... What are the non-price cues? We did a, a study in the US for a large uh, restaurant chain and they couldn't agree on price. The franchisees could not agree on a price. So we had to communicate, help them to communicate in their advertising price without saying a dollar value. And one of the most powerful things was the talent. So university students, you know, other demographics like older people, ethnicity, the talent, the location, all those sorts of things were communicating price competitiveness. Yeah. So, reputation. So, Mm. Ken, forethought. Mm. You've got an office in the CBD of Melbourne. Yes. You've got an office in New York. Mm. Um, Where are you based in New York? Madison Avenue, 400 Madison. Geez, only Madison Avenue. (laughs) Nice. You You like employing PhDs. We do. Yeah. So, how many of those have you had over your journey? Oh, glory. Well, easily 100. Okay. Mm. Academic papers. How many have you been involved in? I've personally published twice in the Journal of Marketing Science, which is the top That's the one. journal. Yeah. And then people that have worked with you, they've been prolific in that space as well. Indeed, yes. Uh, and PhDs now, even now, are you concentrating on the academic side of your practice? Yes. We still have uh, a number of PhDs, but we've probably got a lot more master's degrees and master's okay. in psych. Yes. We find that master's of psych, Russell, in, in marketing are tremendous, not only because of the buyer behaviour aspect, but because they do a very significant amount of stats in their undergrads and their postgrads, and they're pretty keen to understand what makes consumers behave the way they do, which is our our core. That's your thing. Mm. We're in this downturn, right? Mm. And as you said, you're you're, you're a primary data man. Mm. So just give us a bit of insight into what you're hearing out there with with your data. What's happening? I think that there's been a, a lot of free advice coming out of different circles. And for me, it's largely about, you know, problem announcing as opposed to problem solving. We've been doing a study where we've interviewed now in the last 12 weeks, 20,000 people, some in America, some in Australia. And first and foremost, Russell, it's not homogeneous. There's a spectrum of early adapters, not adopters, but early adapters, right through to to folks that we're calling the home safe. And those two segments represent about 30% of Americans. So, the early adapters are raring to go. They want to go to restaurants. They want to go travelling. So this is US data? Yeah. yeah. Well, we've replicated in Australia as okay. well, but I'm, I'm just using that. But the home safe segment, they're older and uh, they are not about to reassimilate. No matter what changes the government is making in, ser- in terms of opening the system up, they're staying home. Yeah. And they're afraid. Yes. So there's been a rebound in, um, in Australia from the beginning of May to June there's been about a, a 65% improvement on our normality index. So people are starting to feel go towards normality again. Yeah. However, we have a, an implicit scale, Russell, that enables us to, to measure emotion. And that's telling a different story. What that's telling us is that people are still very anxious. And you know about anxiety. Anxiety is, is like a lead anchor in terms of behaviour and and in terms of discretionary behaviour, particularly so. 
discretionary behaviour might be a holiday, might be a, a holiday house, or it, it might be a rhubarb tart at a farmer's market. It, yeah. it, you know, it depends on, on different people. But the thing is that the savings ratio has gone up. People are saving more. Now, this is a problem for the government in terms of their stimulus. Yep. But it's not all bad news. Yeah, yeah. You know, the good news is that there is a tailwind for brands. And the tailwind is that the positive emotions are back to pre-COVID. So when you talk about love, happiness, uh, surprise, those aspects are all back to the normal level. And so you need to be cognizant of the negative emotion. But the issue there is that brands can't solve negative emotions by saying that they're there for you. Right. (laughs) It's just in one week we had a 17% increase in the number of respondents that said to us that they don't believe that the brands are there for them, that are saying it. So the cynicism filter is going up and up and up and brands are continuing to make the unsubstantiated claims that they're there for people. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about the long and the short of it. So obviously that's a big topic in the world of advertising, brand, marketing, et cetera. So we've actually had a chat to Peter Field earlier in the Brand New World series. So when I say the long and the short of it, you know what I'm talking about. The listeners will know what I'm talking about. So, you know, obviously short-term sales-driven versus long-term brand building. Give us your point of view in the here and now, yeah. around the long and the short of it. Yeah. Well, Forthall believes that the best communication has both brand building and retail activation in the single communication. No, really? Yes. And it doesn't... It, <laughs> look, it, 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 I, I understand that if I'm doing a, a doing TV, then I'm more likely to get a brand building effect. I know if I'm doing some sort of digital, I'm more likely to get a come and get it now retail activation effect. But it doesn't mean that you should separate and do the big emotional anthem at the top of the funnel and then work your way down to the bottom of the funnel. So we just did a study in April, Brand Tracker over a quarter, for a a major brand in Australia where the creative agency had convinced the organisation to do the big anthem. I'm going to bore you with a couple of numbers, but I'll I'll do it quickly and we'll get to the key number. Go on. No, we want to know about it. Okay, so the number of people that recalled, recognised seeing the ad was 37%. 0.7%. 0.7%. That's not too bad. That's pretty good. The people that correctly linked it to the right brand, 69.2%. Okay. That's good. That's, that's a good not, number. That's pretty good. Now, if you multiply those two out, you get a, a probability of 26%. So 26% of the target population recognised seeing the ad and yeah. remembered who it was for. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. So that's top of the funnel. Yeah. Let's go to the bottom of the funnel. Have a look at the results there. <laughs> bottom of the funnel, their retail activation, which was mainly digital, 17.9% of the target saw that. And the linkage to the brand wasn't bad. It wasn't too bad either. It was about yep. the same. It was about yep. 50%. Okay. But you multiply those two out and you've got 9%. Oh. Now, so now what you're doing is you're multiplying who was at the top of the funnel by who was who got through to the bottom of the funnel and you, you soon work out that only 2.3% of the target actually made it all the way through from the top to the bottom. Mm-hmm. It's not a funnel. It's a sieve <laughs> and, it's, and it's leaking like crazy. Oh. So if you're getting advice to do the big brand anthem and then later on do some sort of retail activation, we would strongly urge you to disregard that advice. Okay, and so you're, you're saying you need to wrap it all up into the one comms. Yeah. Now, but then, okay, so this is where it gets a bit tricky for me. Mm-hmm. I get it and I also don't want to waste any dollars, right? Mm. So every dollar's got to do something. And if that dollar's actually going to get me through the funnel, get me a sale, then that is Awesome. Like, mm. why divide the money up is really what you're saying. Yes. But if it's about perceived value mm. as opposed to a bucket of chips for $2.50, am I missing a trick? Because am I actually training the consumer to simply buy on price? We've done so much work 
over the years looking at different predictors of how people will behave. And the best predictor is value for money. The correlations we get with the brand health on value for money versus the market share, it's it's really highly correlated. Hmm. So when you say price, folks have got an idea in mind of quality. And then they are looking at price and they're asking themselves, is that good value? Right. So you can do two things in that case with your dollar. You can either raise their perception of your quality and by raising your perception of quality, then you give yourself price-setting discretion. Yeah. You can raise your price. Yeah. But, or, but leave, what, or leave the price where it is, raise the perception of quality and brain it. Damn right. And, and that's your price brand. We've got clients, Russell, that that go away and they, they do these big brand comms on quality and never touch price. And they inadvertently lead the consumer to believe that they're more expensive. I like that, Ken. So now budgets, 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 yeah. The market is in a world of pain, right? Mm. In particular, the 1P marketer is going to be in a world of pain because the variable expense that is promotion is pretty easy to cut in times like this. So tell us the data, tell us the advice when it comes to budgets in times like this. Yes, well, I'm going to slightly sidestep that, Russell, because I know that marketing budgets are under pressure and we're seeing it firsthand, but we think there's tremendous scope in organisations to actually cut budgets without cutting marketing budgets. Yes. We think that organisations, and this goes to Adam Ferrier's point about customer obsession, we think that organisations are overweight on customer centricity, big time. Big time. Yeah. They have initiatives that they're, they're running that have no effect on the business outcomes that they seek to change. If I'm thinking about acquisition, then we're talking about value for money. If I'm trying to manage for retention, then I'm talking about customer experience mostly. And then I need to mathematically be able to understand what are the actions of the organisation that drive consumers in their behaviours. If the actions that I'm taking are not driving consumer behaviour, then why am I funding them? So organisations are are very, very, in our view, very overweight on customer centricity. You know, Russell, saying that you're dedicated to customer centricity sounds admirable right up to the moment that you realise just how insatiable customers are. Yeah, of course. Mm. So I'm going to give you a couple of just tropes. Mm -hmm. 50% of my budget's wasted. I don't know which 50%. How do you react to that? Walk did a study uh, on digital last year and came up with 60%. Uh, I'm afraid to say, uh, as tripe as that is, and I hate hearing it and you hate hearing it, hasn't changed. Yeah. It's 100 years old, that that comment. Yep. We are still too preoccupied with where we say it and we're still putting too little weight on what we say. Mm. Now, what we say ought to be the drivers of consumption behaviour. We should be creating relatively confined creative briefs for the creative and we, we should get out of the road of the creatives. I'm not suggesting that... You know, the science starts interrupting the creativity. I'm suggesting that the science creates boundaries mm. that fences off the area that creativity should be playing within. Yep, great. And they should love that. Pareto, the yep. old 80 20. Callan Man. Yeah, that 20% of the uh, audience mm-hmm. is giving you 80% of your revenue. Just concentrate on the 20%. Look, I'm a bit of a fan of that idea, <laughs> I've got to say. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why, because you, you, when you introduced the topic today, you said we were going to get to marketing leadership. We've had a lot of experience watching a lot of folks try to change the trajectory of their brands. And I'd like to call on the ones that have done it outstandingly well. And the ones that have done it outstandingly well 
are the ones that have had brutal singularity. Yeah. Have seriously gone after one audacious goal and they've made substantial inroads that have driven the performance of the organisation. I'm a bit of a fan of, of focus and, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm going to ask you a question which is really important. Mm-hmm. In the world of marketing, I want you to tell me what you simply know to be true. That's a marvellous, marvellous question. What do I know to be true is that consumers will invariably buy on value for money. And the best thing that you can be doing is understanding how they determine value. That's not a short answer. There's some science in understanding how people make choice. Understanding that they must have an emotional detonator, that we cannot decide without emotion, but then there's going to be a price and a quality trade-off. So we need to understand what is the quality aspect that is driving their behaviour. We need to understand what the price aspect is that is driving their behaviour. And that forms our triple play, which will explain changes in market share. Mm -hmm. And Russell, I know that for sure. Okay. Just give us a bit more on your triple play. Uh, Why don't we talk about BBL? A 2012 cracker. Great launch, 2012-13, massive contraction. Mm. Cricket Australia thought that maybe they would move the calendar. If they moved the calendar, there would be less of a a clash with the Indian BBL League, well, the the limited over league, and that they might raise the salary cap to get more stars and perhaps we can get Shane Warne to come and play again. The marketing research showed that it was very little to do about the cricket and it was all to do about with a, a social opportunity to be with the family. So what BBL and Cricket Australia discovered was that the emotion that they needed to capture was not pride in the Australian team, but happiness. Happiness with the family on that occasion. That it wasn't about star players, it was about this opportunity to be with the family and to have fun. Yeah. And finally, it was about a family pass of $42. Yep. That's their triple play. Yeah. They briefed in MNC Saatchi with that triple play and I looked at MNC Saatchi's brief in 2019, six years later, and it was exactly the same. Yeah, absolutely. Massive benefit of having Mike Fisher in that role for all those years as the steward on Cricket Australia to say, no, we understand what's driving it. And, of course, when people look at Cricket Australia uh, up to 2018, 2019, and they see it flattening out, They might misread that because it's flattening out because the stadiums are at capacity. Mm. So, Ken, you just talked about the drivers then. Mm. What I know to be true is that you are single-minded around what are the core drivers in this category. Mm -hmm. And I also know that that is how you advise clients. And what I also know to be true is you're pretty damn good at what you do. Thanks for coming in and talking to us on Brand New World, Ken. It's been great having you. Thank you. Brand New World is a Podcast One Australia production. Produced by Dave Zwolenski and Matthew Dwyer.